0: Mark, I was going to, uh, lost children. I was very intrigued how you are going to end that up. I was thinking, okay, citizens of heaven, do we get to vote who's in charge? <laughs> Last week, Mark um, introduced Philippians to you out of Acts 16. And uh, we're actually going to be drawing from some of that a little bit later on this morning. Before last week, we were doing a series on generosity, specifically as it relates to financial giving. We talked a lot about the biblical principles around giving and what does it mean to be generous and that as we move toward maturity, we become more generous. And as we become more generous, we experience more joy. Well, this time in Philippians, we're focusing on a very similar thing. We're still talking about generosity, but now we're talking about our very lives. And what does it look like to give our lives uh, up for the kingdom. What does that mean? Or in other words, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? What does that mean as well? Citizenship is a very big, um, it's a big discussion in our country right now. Has been for a few years, The whole immigration question. And what does it mean to bring people from other countries into our country? Do we, uh, do we bring them in? What does it look like to bring them in? Do we, what protection do we put along our borders? What's the process for bringing them? I and mean, you know all those questions. You're familiar with that so citizenship is a, it's, a, it's something very interesting and very unusual. Mark talked last week, I believe, about um, in Philippi, named after Philip, by the way, they were given citizenship as a gift. Uh, they were given Roman citizenship. So there were several ways you could get citizenship, and they were kind of hierarchies. You could, you could be born into citizenship. That was the highest level. If you had the pedigree, so if you are an American, you're born as an American citizen. And other people have to come in and acquire citizenship through another means. In the Roman empire, you could buy your way into citizenship. And so Mark talked about the, the passages where, where Paul says, I was born a citizen. And the Roman uh, military were like, wow, we didn't even do that. We had to pay for ours. So Paul came from very high pedigree. So these people in this community, they knew what it was like not to be a citizen of the empire. And then they were given citizenship, probably their grandparents were. They were given citizenship, so it was a very high value. It meant something to them. And we take it for granted, because most of us in here are, most of us are citizens of the United States. We're born into that. We just are American citizens. We, it's, it's, just, it's just integral to our, to the way we think. We have our rights and our laws and protections and all the things that go with that. If we ever get into trouble around the world, we can call the U.S. Embassy somewhere and say, hey, I'm in trouble, and hopefully they'll come help us. And so we, we take it a little bit for granted, most of us, because we were born into it. It's hard to imagine what it's like not having these privileges and then being given the privileges. So we are going to address throughout this series, what does it mean to be a citizen? And today we're going to look specifically at the whole concept of partnership in the gospel. As we begin to define citizenship, our new citizenship, this is the first thing we'll talk about, is we are partners together in the gospel. Let's begin by reading the first couple of verses, otherwise known as the greeting. For those of you that read your Bible every year, you're familiar with these greetings. If you don't read your Bible every year, I'm going to uh, encourage you again, invite you into that. As we get toward the end of the year, I read it through every year, and it's just fun. Sometimes it's hard. (laughs) Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes it's frustrating, but it's worth it. Okay, so Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... To all of God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Typically, when we read this, we just breeze right past it. But let's stop. Or as Jude likes to say, hold the phone. I love that. Hold the phone. What's in a greeting? Is there anything in here that is worth taking a look at? It sure sounds like all of his other epistles when you read them, doesn't it? Well, you have to understand that the format that Paul uses in all these epistles is a well-known format in the first century Roman Empire. Letters were written back and forth, and this was the standard way that they constructed their letters. So this is very similar. However, Paul does something a little different. He makes a change. He adapts each of his descriptions, his greetings, or his descriptions of himself, he, adap- he adapts them to the circumstances of the letter. And he highlights right in the beginning what he wants to highlight, much like you do when you meet somebody for the first time. Now, he knew the Philippians because he'd been there, but when you meet somebody, what do you tell them about yourself? Well, you don't give them the whole story. They, they'd be bored and run away in a few minutes, right? That's not what we do. We often look for points of connection, don't we? Or something we want to emphasize. So maybe you find out that you're in the same industry. And so that you introduce yourself in terms of where you work. Or maybe you find out you both have little kids or you're newlyweds or whatever, and, and that's how you introduce yourself. So it's very common when we introduce ourselves to shape the way we introduce ourselves so that the people we're talking to will, uh, will capture a glimpse of who we are. We have a connection point right away. Paul does a very similar thing, except he is adapting it to the circumstances that he wants to highlight. What does he want to talk about? So what's the very first thing he says? Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I use the word slaves on purpose because the concept of servanthood is a relatively new idea. That language in our culture, back in the Roman Empire, they pretty much had a two-class system. You either are a free person or you're a slave. You either own humans or you're owned by a human. Those are your kind of two choices. So when they read this, they would have read slave. That's what they would have understood. Because that's the world that they lived. Slaves or free men, they would have heard slave. So the very first thing he says is that he is a slave. And this is a key, it's a key theme in this book. We're going to see this language over and over and over again. We're going to see examples of it. We're going to see him talking about what does it mean. So the very first thing we learn about this citizenship, this new home that we have, is that we are slaves. Slaves to whom? Jesus. Slaves to Jesus. Now, unless you get caught up on the notion of slavery, contrast that with Paul's teachings elsewhere where he says we were formerly slaves to sin. Sin was our former owner. But no more. No more. Romans does a fantastic job of arguing that that is no more. Based on what Christ has done, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves to Jesus. <clears throat> that's part of that redemptive language that's used in Romans where he comes to the auction block and as slaves, we're lined up on the, the pedestal, the, the, the stage, if you will, and he bids for us and he pays the highest price, death. And so he gives us, he, he takes us in as slaves we belong to him and then he does the most amazing things he grants us our freedom As soon as he purchases us out of the slave market this end as soon as he buys us from our former owner he turns right around and gives us freedom isn't that wonderful news and then he says don't squander your freedom use it use it well in fact, that's how we ended up at the end of the generosity series was looking at Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't squander it, because now he's given you freedom. So Paul says, I am a slave of Jesus. If you were here in this context, what you would have heard was Paul is making himself totally dependent and giving himself totally at the disposal of of his master, Jesus. Now, it's easy for us to use that language and say that we want to do that. How many of you want to give yourself completely to Jesus? Let me see. Okay, keep your hands up. How about if you lose your spouse today? Ooh, I did that. I lost a spouse one day. I woke up and said goodbye to her. to be with the Lord and I learned that I don't really want to give myself up to Jesus not 100% maybe 50% as long as it's a good 50% but what they would have heard is okay you're a slave that means you take everything that comes your way good and bad everything we're going to get into that because that's a key part of this book He's going to soon move, and we'll get there in a couple weeks, to argue that Jesus is the same way. He did the same. He gave it all up. Gave it all up. Well, then he goes on and uses this phrase, which we banter about in our churches, to all God's holy people in, or some of your translations say saints, in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. I can't say enough how unique this phrase is. How countercultural, how revolutionary, how unusual it is! Because in a world where they served gods, um, to be in a god—what does that mean? To be in a god—they didn't use that language. They didn't have this this concept. It didn't even make sense to them. And he is saying that we are in Christ Jesus. That language is all throughout Paul's writings. This in Christ imagery. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? What it means is, unlike any other God, you have a unique relationship. You have a unique relationship. They didn't have relationships with the gods. It's not the way things worked. Their goal was to keep the gods appeased, to keep them happy. And all of a sudden, along come these pesky Christians and start telling them about Yahweh, the one true living God and his son Jesus, who is himself God, and that you can have a relationship with him. But it's not an individual relationship. It's a corporate relationship. When you enter into a relationship with Jesus, you also, at the same time, enter into a relationship with a whole bunch of people. I'm one of them. Just take a moment, look around. You're you're sitting right in the middle. Look at each other, go ahead. Take a look at each other. You became part of something much bigger than yourself. Have you ever wondered what God thinks about Sunday morning? You come to church. I know what you think about it because many of you let me know. I know the ones that like it. I know the ones that don't like it. I know the ones that want to make it better. I know. I know all that stuff because you email me, and you email Mark, and you send us notes and things like that. So we have a good sense of what you think about Sunday morning. What does God think about Sunday morning? What does He experience? worth asking that question from time to time it'll change your the way you look at things if you could take your glasses off if I could and put on spiritual lenses I would see things a little differently I try hard I tried this morning knowing I was coming into the sermon and here's what I heard here's what I saw a bunch of people come together with a whole bunch of different gifts and they make something happen they make life happen these gifts are obvious aren't they up here in fact whoever's up on the stage often it's obvious what our gifts are it's very obvious i think that's why scripture talks about those of us with the loud mouth the speaking gifts one of our primary roles is to reflect glory to those who don't have those speaking gifts it's very popular in the corporate world for instance to say the purpose of the for employees is to make their boss look good and i believe that as a christian i've always tried to make my boss look good but in the Christian world, that's, it's the opposite of that. It's just the opposite. My employees don't have to make me look good. It's the opposite. My job is to make them look good. I love our staff. They're fantastic people. In a Christian context, the higher you are positionally, the more obligation you have to highlight the glory of the people underneath you. It's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. So I look, and these gifts are obvious right here, but I was watching, milling around among the crowd, and I saw some of you with the gift of encouragement, uh, encouraging people. Hey, how are you? It's great to see you. How's uh, so-and-so, or how's the job situation, or how, you all, you know a lot about each other. I can tell by the questions you ask. Some of you have been praying for each other. Some of you with the gift of mercy or compassion. You're showing up, and you're going up to somebody that has recently been hurting, and I see you put your arm around saying, how are you doing? How's it going? How's it hurt? You want to grab coffee this week? I see that. Some of you with the gift of service, just quietly ushering. There they are, ushers. They don't, they don't blow a horn, do they? No, they're just greeting you. I'm glad you're here, thanks, and handing you a bulletin. Just quietly doing their thing. You're going to see that with communion servers up here today. A lot of servers, a lot of servants, people with that gift. See what I mean? Sunday morning, I watched this morning and I saw a whole bunch of people come together and do what God has made them to do. And it's so natural you didn't even think about it, many of you. You just did it. And that generates life, it generates energy. That's what this in Christ language is all about. We belong to something bigger than ourselves. Very popular in this county, I've learned in a year and a half, to say I can find Jesus in the mountains. I can find God, I should say, not Jesus. I can find God in the mountains, to be more precise. It's true. But you miss out on a whole lot of things. The question I've asked the staff and elders more than once is, uh, what do you get from church that you don't get anyplace else? Authentic, loving, genuine community. And if you can't find that at our church, then we're going to change things. It's an imperative. We have to. Don't be fooled. There's nothing wrong with getting your private time away. But what do you miss when you only find God in the mountains? You miss care. You miss concern. You miss love. You miss affection. You miss all the things that bring, that community brings. You miss help. Okay, Go tell the trees that you can't pay your heating bill. See what they do about it. What we do as a community is vital. It's very important. This is the way that God showcases his glory right here. And I don't mean by right here. I don't mean sunny morning. That's a piece of it. I mean right here, these people, us. By the way, that's why marriage is a microcosm of what God is doing among the redeemed. I've been on a journey the last month asking people their understanding of the theology of Christian marriage, and I've discovered that most of you don't really know what a theology of Christian marriage is all about. Several people have reduced it down to covenant. Well, it's not about covenant, it's a whole lot more than that. A whole lot more than that. It's the primary means that God showcases his glory. That's what, what we do is important. This is how God showcases his glory right here with us. Ephesians 3. To God be the glory in the church. Fabulous words. So this in Christ language here, this is digging down deep into a heart, the heart of Paul's theology. But then he goes on to verse 2, grace and peace. Okay, we read that in letters all throughout the first century with, a, with a, a couple of exceptions. You can't see it too well in English. If you were seminary or Bible college trained, you would see that these words are just slightly different. They're slightly different. In English, it comes across as saying grace and peace. But you have to understand, these are the twin pillars of which Paul builds his theology on. This isn't like, hey, good luck. Hey, have a good day. Hope your week goes okay. No, no, this isn't at all. He is actually saying, what i desire for you are the two most important things that summarize the gospel grace and peace grace is the catchword that captures <clears throat> for paul the entire gospel message now we like to reduce the gospel down to jesus christ died on the cross for your sins granted that's a significant that's the core of it but that's not the the catchword that paul uses the word that paul uses is grace Because what's the good news? God has not forgotten us. He's coming back for us. That's what Christmas is all about. We're going to be there soon. He remembered his promise. He came back for us. This good news is that God is doing everything within his power to love, to bless, to get your attention so that you will have confidence in him. It's called grace. So grace occurs in every book at the beginning of every book almost. Paul summarizes the gospel in that word grace, the goodness of God to you. The second one, peace, deeply rooted in Old Testament language. You've heard the word shalom, right? What is that? That's what we were built for. It's what we're created for. Shalom is when you feel that internal rest. The, the, the tension is gone. The insecurities are gone. and You go, It doesn't mean you don't like to work because honestly, if you think about it, sometimes your greatest moments of fulfillment come when you're working hard, right? So it has nothing to do with work when we talk about rest. It has everything to do with the internal state of the soul. You were meant, holistically, all of you, to be at rest. You're not meant to have cancer. You're not meant to lose spouses. You're not meant to be under a boss that's a tyrant. You're not meant for those things. That's why shalom captures peace. What we're intended for. Now, when you put these ideas together, grace comes first, peace follows. Grace is God's movement in your life, peace is the result. So, when he says grace and peace to you, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. The higher churches often express the peace of Christ, don't they? Many of you come from those traditions. So, I want you to turn to somebody right now and say the grace of god to you or the peace of christ to you just turn and say it to one another extend that blessing so we have three things right off the bat in the beginning three things that are going to dominate this book one is slavery we belong to jesus The second one is in Christ. We should be creating and continually working at generating authentic community. And then the final one is grace and peace, being a blessing to one another. You have been blessed so that you can bless those around you. Don't ever forget that. Extending that. So when you see people, extend to them the peace of Christ. Be gracious to them. Okay, then he moves on to his prayer. Let's just read this. I'm going to give you my thoughts. I thank my God, verse 3, every time I remember you. and all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you, all of you, since I have you in my heart. And notice this language of affection here. Just notice it. We're not going to draw attention to it other than we're not going to work through it in detail other than to draw attention and say think about how passionate he is for these people this is part of authentic community okay it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since i have you in my heart and whether i am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel all of you share in god's grace with me all of you god can testify how i long for all of you With the affection of Christ Jesus. Is that good language? Isn't that good? This should characterize our relationships. I can tell you, every Tuesday we have a staff meeting. You know what we do? We talk about you, we laugh. Some of you we laugh at quite a lot. We talk about your needs, we talk about your hurts. If we know of your frustrations, we talk about those. Some of you know because you've had me call you up and say, hey, let's go to coffee. I heard you were frustrated. We talk about you. We love you. We do. And we talk about what does it mean to be shepherds to you? How do we help? Who's going to the funeral? Who's going to the wedding? Who's going to the hospital? Sometimes Mark goes. Sometimes I go. Sometimes Jude goes. Annika's been. Tom goes. We take turns. We don't all show up. We talk about you. We love you. We are developing this affection for you. We thank God for you. We recognize that it was the movement of the Spirit to place you here at our church. And so we give him the credit and we do everything we can to love you well. That's the language he's talking about here. I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. You could say more and more richly, richer and richer and richer. That's my prayer, he says, for you in this knowledge and insight, so you can know the truth, because the world is out to deceive you. Every message just about we get is the opposing message. It's the opposite message of the truth of the gospel. Almost everyone. And so he's praying for true insight into the world around you. What a great prayer. We pray that for you. So that you may be able to discern what is best, in that good language. So you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. That comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. At this period of time in the world, offering a prayer of thanksgiving was common in letters. But once again, Paul does something very, very revolutionary here, very unique. Because you see, what they did was they would praise or thank the gods for the personal benefits that they received. So I write home to my mom and dad. I say, Mom and Dad, it's Jim. Um, First of all, I praise Zeus for taking care of me, for giving me this, for my promotion, for whatever. So they would praise the gods for the personal benefits received. Paul does just the opposite. He thanks God for the people that he's writing to. He's not self-centered, he's other-centered. he's excited about their partnership in the gospel a key phrase they they know what he's been through they're not ashamed of him at all they were there with him if you read the story in Acts 16 when he went down to the waterfront they saw it happen and he started sharing Christ with the women at the waterfront by the way that's a pretty bold statement for Luke to write down because men didn't do that Jewish rabbis didn't go talk to the women where does Paul go? He goes right down to the waterfront where he knew the women would be working. And he starts talking to them about Jesus and watches them come to know the Lord. It's a statement of his love and affection for women. One of the things you see in the Christian message as you move through Scripture is that women are constantly being exalted at a higher and higher level. It's very clear you can map it out from beginning to end of Scripture. It shows God's care for you women. Let me just say that. His concern for you. Because this is a tough world for women. Tough world. And we have it better than just about anybody in the world. Go to any third world country and it's even tougher. And so that's a statement. They saw all that. They saw the earthquake. They saw they saw Paul cast that demon out of that girl and go to jail for it. They saw that. Then they saw the earthquake and they saw the Philippian jailer almost take his life. And they saw him come to know Christ. They were there. They're not ashamed that he's in prison right now. They're not ashamed of that at all. They're partners. They're going, yeah, we're on your side, Paul. And Paul's thankful for that. Very thankful. Excuse me. Then he puts in that wonderful language, which many of you know so well, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. It's very easy in our cultural context to read that individually. Again, it is true, it has an individual application to it, but this is, a, this is written to the church, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in y'all, it's a plural, you, you as a church. He who began a good work at DCC, we can have confidence that he will finish it, that he will fulfill it, that he will teach us and help us learn what it means to really showcase his glory that's what he's talking about some of you have heard me use the metaphor that when you turn to Christ you became a mirror what does a mirror do? reflects what is it you're reflecting? his glory and as you learn, as we build authentic community and as you learn to carry out live out your faith in real ways what happens is your reflection of the Lord gets brighter and brighter and brighter It's like polishing the mirror. So it's very important how we live our lives. It's very, very important. He wants them, the high point, to come to know the truth. Come to know the truth about righteousness. What it means to live out our faith. So this whole question of what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven, right off the bat, we are to partner together and we are to work together to live out our faith. If you can't, if this is not a safe place, where is? Where is that place? This has to be the place where you can fall. And people run to help pick you up. This has to be the place when you are bowed down with the burdens of life, where people run to grab you by the arms and say, let us carry the load with you. This has to be the place when you offend people and you will, it's part of being human, where the people that you offend run to your aid and say, it's okay, I forgive you. If this is not the right place, if this can't do it here, where can we do it? You see why it's so important that we live out our faith in genuine ways? Let me say one more word about this. Verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Most of us, when we talk about ministry, what we end up talking about is we end up talking about what we are doing in ministry. Paul doesn't care about that. You see, Paul has a fundamental belief that God is sovereign. Nothing happened by accident to him. Nothing. He believed it. That was the core of his theology, core conviction. Nothing happened by accident. Therefore, whatever place he found himself in, He wasn't going to waste time expressing his frustration over that. He instead asked the question, if I'm going to have to go through this, God, what's the result? What's the result? Look what he says. As a result, verse 13, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. That's all he cares about. Or the second one, verse 14, and because of my change, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It doesn't matter he's been beat. He says in the Corinthian epistles, he gives a list of all the afflictions he's gone through and including being beat to within one stroke of death. And you know what he says? It doesn't matter. These are all momentary light afflictions. He doesn't care about what, how God is getting the gospel spread. What he cares is about is that the gospel is spreading. And that's what we're going to see next week. I know that some of you, I know this, I know that some of you go through really hard times. It's part of life. More than part of life, it's part of God's plan. Nothing can happen without his permission. Nothing. As he said to Job after a year of suffering, Would you really annul my judgment? He didn't say Satan did that to you. He took responsibility. Could it be that suffering is the key way that God showcases his glory? Your suffering is the key way that God showcases his glory. Let me say one more thing about the prayers. <clears throat> prayers in the New Testament. I mentioned that the prayers of the first century world were often self-centered, self-focused. Paul turned that around. His prayers were other-centered, other-focused. That is the norm. That's the model. When you read through the prayers, most of them are focused on other people. doesn't mean it's wrong to pray for your needs. Of course that's right. God says to do that. Paul, Jesus talks about that in the Gospels. It's very appropriate to that. The only time it becomes inappropriate is if, if your own preoccupation with your needs um, supersedes your preoccupation with the people around you. So make sure your prayers are balanced. Pray for this group right here. Pray for the people that are struggling. One more thing about prayers. We don't have any example in the New Testament of praying for the unsaved. We don't have any commands. We don't have that. Does that mean it's wrong to pray for the unsaved? Absolutely not. Unless, unless you use it as an excuse not to go love and share Christ. Hundreds of passages on loving the unsaved and sharing Christ, but none on praying for them. Of course, it's appropriate. But I want you to see the priority in Scripture is that you engage with the world around you, your friends and neighbors. To God be the glory in the church. You are the means by which God showcases his glory. Let him have his way. When you feel that struggle, you feel that struggle, the hurt, some of you are going through really tough things. Remember, God is at that moment doing his finest work. Or as Paul's going to say a little bit later, when I am weak, then he is strong. Live out your faith. Let me close with one short story. This is a book. Next week, it'll actually be out there. It's not this week. You can buy it. I would encourage you to. It's by John Stott, a little book called The Radical Disciple. It's the last book he wrote, and he said that in there, And he died right after he wrote it. Uh, he was sick, and he knew his time was there. And this is the culmination, his reflection on uh, 40, 50 years of Christian life. He's written lots and lots of books, many of them academic, many of them popular. But this is the final. It's a little tiny book. Isn't it great that the final, when you get to the end of life, you only got a few things to say? <laughs> Here's what he says, chapter 1, this is how he opens. The first characteristic of the radical disciple, that's the name of the book, the radical disciple, that I bring before you I will call nonconformity. We think of it as rebellion. Nonconformity. Let me explain why. The church has a double responsibility in relation to the world around us. On the one hand, we are to live, serve, and witness in the world. On the other hand, we are to avoid being contaminated by the world. These things are intention, aren't they? So we are neither to seek to preserve our holiness by escaping from the world, nor to sacrifice our holiness by conforming to the world. Escapism and conformism are thus both forbidden to us. This is one of the major themes of the whole Bible, namely that God is calling out a people for himself and is summoning us to be different from everyone else. Be holy, he says, repeatedly. Why? Because I am holy. This theme occurs in every section of scripture. Be holy, for I am holy. Live out your faith together. We are neither to seek to preserve our holiness by escaping from the world, nor to sacrifice our holiness by conforming to the world. That's part one of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. That's what it means. We live out our faith together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your deep love for us, for your sacrifice of your son Jesus. Thank you for that. And thank you, Lord, for these people that are here, the community that I belong to. I love these people, Lord. Thank you for putting us together. Thank you for for ensuring that we continue on the journey